Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. As regular listeners will know, I am no stranger to cliches or a lazy stereotype. Oh no. Do you recall that famous line in the film Bonnie and Clyde delivered by Warren Beatty? This here's Miss Bonnie Parker, I'm Clyde Barrow and we rob banks. And although over 40 years have passed since that movie was made, any time a man and a woman go on the run together, there is a really good chance they'll be compared to the real-life pair who died in a hail of around 50 bullets on that Louisiana back road in 1934. So today's case is a real Bonnie and Clyde type story, but with a twist or three taking us halfway across the world from the UK to Western Africa. This is one of the few stories I've covered where I have some real genuine sympathy for the perpetrators. I wonder if by the end of this podcast, you will too. But before we begin, a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Tracy Jane, Jack, Pamela Larkham, Celeste White, Claire Hewitt, Dominic Stevenson and Barbara Broaders. Enjoy the 29 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. And if there's any more value I can bring to you, please just let me know. Thank you all so much for your support. Just before we get stuck into today's story, let's set some context by taking a look at the music we were, or maybe weren't, listening to at this time. Coming into June 2006, top of the UK charts was Nas Barclay with Crazy, followed by Sandy Tom with Wish I Was a Punk Rocker. Are you keen? Both still sound pretty good to me. In the US, it was Chameleonaire featuring Crazy Bone with Riding. Obviously, I'm a big fan. And in the Australian album charts, the king of Twitter, James Blunt, was the top-selling artist this year with Back to Bedlam, keeping Pink from the top spot with I'm Not Dead. In the news this month, the British Houses of Parliament temporarily shut down due to an anthrax alert. Unlike the last three years, when they have shut down due to you-know-what. The Union of Serbia and Montenegro came to an end with Montenegro's formal declaration of independence. Pluto's newly discovered moons were officially named Nix and Hydra. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, starring Johnny Depp, Kira Knightley and Orlando Bloom, premiered at Disneyland and became the fastest film to gross over $1 billion. The US Supreme Court ruled that President George W. Bush's plan to try Guantanamo Bay detainees and military tribunals violated US and international law. And in sport, England progressed to the knockout stages of the World Cup in Germany under Sven. Remember, the ones where the wags were prominent. But the boys were soon on their way home after losing on penalties to Portugal. We begin today's story in beautiful Falmouth in Western Cornwall, famous for its stunning harbour, which together with Carrick Roads, forms the third deepest natural harbour in the world and the deepest in Western Europe. The town was the birthplace of toad, mole and rat, as Kenneth Graham's classic The Wind in the Willows began as a series of letters sent to his son, and the first two were written at the Greenbank Hotel in Falmouth, whilst Graham was a guest in May 1907. The hotel is still there and you can still see the originals. 49-year-old Peter Clark lived just outside Falmouth in 2006. 
He'd led an interesting life, which was difficult for him in the early years, when he wasn't strong academically as he suffered from dyslexia, at a time when it wasn't widely understood and he didn't receive the support he needed at school. But he had what a lot of his more studious classmates lacked. He had a strong supportive family, good looks, charm and charisma. Teachers and classmates all later spoke of his persuasive nature. He left the confines of school as soon as he could at 16, and he took roles where he could spend time having fun with the public, such as a Butlin's red coat and a Pontin's blue coat in Blackpool and Skegness. From there he set up a mobile disco, but when it wasn't making enough cash for him, he moved into double glazing, setting up his own firm. But Peter had a slight issue in that he struggled with the grey areas between telling the truth and lying. And he also failed to see the problem with separating others from their hard-earned cash. These issues with basic morality and the law meant that he was seen very familiar with the inside of a prison cell. His mum, Sylvia, wasn't surprised when he went to prison for the first time, as she had come to expect the unexpected from her son, she said. He lived his life to excess. He was charming and could butter up any female. He would disappear for years, then come back as though he had just popped out for a loaf of bread. He even failed to tell me that he got married and had a daughter until she was three months old. He was always searching for something, but never seemed to quite be able to find it. He wasn't interested in the ordinary, often mundane nine-to-five and he often talked about owning his own boat and travelling the seas. And by the start of the new millennium, Peter had served two jail terms for fraud, including one for stealing some valuable paintings from his wife's family. He had travelled extensively, always looking for exciting new people and opportunities, and his criminal record meant he had to take some interesting jobs, such as a deep-sea fisherman. But by the summer of 2006... He was relatively settled in Penryn near Falmouth, where he ran a financial consultancy company. I can't find any details of his time as a financial advisor, but I imagine, just a hunch, there were quite a few unhappy customers. Falmouth, if you've been there, you'll know it's a stunning place. And Peter spends a lot of time around the harbour watching the yachts, dreaming about where they were heading when they set sail. If you, like me, are a keen sailor, you will know that it is anything but an expensive, exclusive sport for most people. And like me, you will refuse to wear those red trousers, ever. But this wasn't the side that interested Peter. He started to spend a lot of time in the bars frequented by the more wealthy sailing group in the town. And he slowly became obsessed, he became besotted with the lifestyle enjoyed by the well-off yachting crowd drawn to this lovely part of the world. Then in 2004, he met someone special, 45-year-old Sharon Arthurs Chagini. I suppose it was no surprise that the two fell for each other, as Sharon too loved the high life. One of her three daughters, Jade, would later say that her mum had always lived the champagne and cocaine lifestyle. She played the hostess very well, and she always looked glamorous. She was always the life and soul of the party, said Jade, adding, she would not be content with serving wine at a party, she would always be lavish and serve champagne. 
She dabbled in cannabis and cocaine, living beyond her means with a decadent lifestyle. She loved boats and saw the lifestyle of having a boat as glamorous. She enjoyed the dangers of life, said Jade. It excited her. She thought she was invincible. But it led to her mixing with some dangerous and unscrupulous people. When Sharon met Peter, there was an instant physical attraction. They were both good-looking people. But in each other, they sensed more than that, something of a kindred spirit almost. They were both somewhat unfulfilled and just desperately looking for more from life. Sharon, who was also from Falmouth, acquired her double-barrelled surname through a marriage of convenience to a man from Iran for which she was paid £15,000. She later had three daughters, two of a man who used to tour with circuses, but that relationship didn't last. Sharon then had a third daughter with an American businessman, but after the breakdown of that relationship, he returned to the US. At one stage, her lifestyle meant that her three daughters had been taken into care. That was in 1997, on a period on the at-risk register. But by the time she met Peter Clark, the four of them were living together again. When she met Peter, she was running her own fashion design business, Chagini Design, from her home. But in reality, the business was barely making any money, and she survived on benefits and the money given to her by the men she met. But crucially, none of these men gave Sharon the excitement that she was so desperately looking for. Sharon was looking for a new adventure, and it's fair to say that she wasn't to be disappointed after meeting Peter. Indeed, when they first met in early 2004, Peter had only just been released from the slammer, this time having been convicted of four drink-driving offences, which he blamed on the stress of a disastrous year in corporate finance. Theirs was a passionate whirlwind romance. Note what I said at the start about tired cliches? I love them. And within weeks they announced plans to marry and they drove from Cornwall to Scotland for an extended holiday. But as often seemed to be the case with Peter, life didn't quite go to plan. This time it was just an innocent night out with Sharon. But they had to flee after getting into an argument with a shooting party at a pub on the Isle of Skye in August 2004. When a gun was pulled on him, Peter wisely jumped into his car and sped off. But actually, it maybe wasn't such a wise choice as he'd been drinking heavily and was once more arrested for drink driving and tossed into the cells. Sharon spoke up for him in court the next day, begging the judge for leniency, as Peter was suffering from a major cocaine habit and he needed to go into rehab not a prison cell. But looking at his record, the judge didn't feel charitable and this wasn't the time to provide Peter another chance and instead he jailed him for another five months. Their relationship survived this time apart and on his release, the couple met up again and they moved back to Cornwall. Peter knew that he needed a plan to get the money needed for the life he and Sharon wanted to live but couldn't afford. So reverting to type, it was time for another scam, and this time around an old favourite, which we have seen on this podcast, is always of interest to those who can relatively easily be exploited by fraudsters, and that is property. The high returns that can be offered, promised more to the point. 
The couple claimed to be planning to spend £1 million buying the three-star Epford House Hotel near Exeter in Devon. They needed partners for this project, they needed to raise awareness, and they befriended a number of people with their stories of ambitious refurbishment plans, with, of course, the sensational financial returns for their investors. To appear genuine and credible, they spent £3,000 hosting a champagne party for potential investors to discuss the scheme. You can picture it, can't you? Sharon at her vibrant, charming best, and Peter working the room, almost sniffing out genuine interest and honing in on those people he sensed could be persuaded. At this soiree, he told one potential investor, who almost handed over £100,000, that he planned to build a helicopter pad to receive famous guests, such as Sir Bono of U2 and Sting. Another potential investor, John Rice, later said, I was almost hoodwinked, almost dragged into his scam. I must have had more than half a dozen meetings and soon began to realise that Peter was a con man. If it wasn't for the fact it was people's savings at risk, what happened next would be amusing. In fact, it wouldn't be out of place in an Adam Sandler comedy. The couple were actually arrested straight after this champagne event, after fleeing through the hotel's back exit, leaving behind a £1,000 bill for food, accommodation and drink. And whilst detectives investigated just what was happening, Peter insisted it was all a mistake and offered to repay any money. He quickly wrote out a cheque to make amends for what had clearly been a misunderstanding, but the cheque handed to his solicitors bounced. To evade justice, maybe this was the time for the two of them to start a new life of adventures on the ocean, which they both dreamt about. The only issue was the couple barely had enough to buy two coffees, let alone a yacht. But Peter, well, he was never one to let small things like this stand in his way, and the couple jumped bail, stealing a 10-metre, two-masted yacht from Milo Yacht Harbour near Falmouth. They headed east, but not quickly enough, and the yacht was later spotted, by a harbour master just down the coast at the port of Fowey in March 2006 and the couple were arrested for theft. Peter just felt he couldn't face another inevitable stretch in prison and whilst awaiting trial the couple went on the run again. Friends heard rumours that they'd been seen in Scotland, Jersey and mainland Europe but what is for certain is that they headed to warmer climates and turned up in Portugal where they stole another yacht the 41-foot Skipper 7, from the harbour in Villa Nor. They then headed south in search of more parties and adventure. But this was one trip too many, and today there is no happy ending or stories of other scams. In August 2006, their badly decomposed bodies were found on board the yacht they'd stolen from Portugal, drifting 12 miles off the coast of the West African country of Senegal. The yacht had a ripped sail and there was no water or food on board. Their two bodies were recovered from the yacht. Peter Clark was found lying in a bunk and Sharon Arthur's Jagini was cross-legged on a sofa. The yacht had a jammed rudder and a torn sail and its hull was encrusted with shellfish, suggesting it had been drifting for at least a month. No money was found on the vessel and it was feared that the couple had been killed by the pirates known to operate in these seas, 
There were also suggestions that they had been deliberately set adrift on the crippled boat with no food or water, in a settling of scores over Peter's history of fraud and theft. But the reality, I'm afraid, wasn't so dramatic. Investigators soon discovered Sharon's red diary, which told of their last days at sea, which showed the couple had actually died the most horrendous death of starvation and dehydration. It told how in their final days they were forced to drink seawater and their own urine after running out of fresh water, as they drifted in a seemingly endless ocean as the sun beat down relentlessly on them. In her last entry, written on the 19th of June 2006, Sharon wrote the following. We've been bashed about by a storm for days. Peter is collapsed in bed. I've been unable to get to him. Everything takes huge amounts of energy, having consumed no water yesterday. I'm tired now and the light's going. Love goes to my daughters and family. We've not eaten for four weeks. I dream of mum's steak and kidney pie. The lights are going out in my heart. The inquest into their deaths opened back in Truro and Cornwall. The post-mortem showed that despite severe decomposition, neither body had injuries. And Police Sergeant John Capp said there was no evidence to suggest that their death involved a third party or they were attacked by pirates. The bodies were so badly decomposed that the post-mortem examination carried out in Britain ruled that the deaths were unascertained, but the couple most likely died of dehydration and starvation. The coroner for Cornwall concluded there was little evidence as to how the couple died other than the diary entry which described a lack of water, food and possible storm damage to the yacht. The coroner recorded an open verdict on the couple's death. After the hearing had concluded, Sharon's dad, Terence Arthurs, spoke angrily about Peter Clark, describing him as an absolute rotter and a con man, adding that he believed he and his daughter had sailed around Europe on a variety of stolen boats, he said. Sharon introduced him to us and said she loved him, but he made off with two of our oil paintings to sell and we never heard from him again. He said he had last seen his daughter 18 months ago, but believed the pair had reached Spain, adding, well, they got to Africa, and if it wasn't for that man, Sharon would be alive now. Nobody liked him, but she said he was her soulmate, and that was that. Another friend said, Sharon was a complete free spirit, and she felt she'd finally found what she wanted with Peter. She'd had a series of relationships which hadn't worked out, and although Peter was a wild card, she loved him. Another former boyfriend described her as a phenomenon, who was very charming, but totally self-obsessed. He claimed she'd been diagnosed as suffering a narcissistic personality disorder in 1997. She was quite an exotic girl. She had a bizarre life, and people always said she would come to a sticky end. It is very tragic, he said. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I'm reminded of Coleridge and the rhyme of the ancient mariner, which includes the line, Water, water everywhere, not any drop to drink. This evokes the torment of Tantalus for killing an albatross. It seems a similar punishment befell these two fugitives from justice after starving to death on board the luxury yacht they stole to escape their lives and begin their new adventures. 
Of course, it goes without saying that the theft of the yachts was wrong and they should have had to face justice. But then again, isn't there some part of you after listening to the story today that thinks that maybe Peter and Sharon almost had the right idea and just taken off for adventure? In this one life we have, we try and find contentment, happiness. There is nothing more sad in my experience than talking to someone in their 80s or 90s when they talk about the regrets they have about their life. I know a few years ago in a low part of my life, like many others, I could see nothing but work and mundane ordinariness lying ahead. And at that time, this sort of adventure would have appealed to me. I did it differently and went to Vegas to be a very, very bad poker player for a living and change my life for the better and my finances for the worst. But back to Peter and Sharon. I guess for most of us, if we couldn't have afforded to buy the boat, would have hired it instead, right? But Peter, he didn't operate like this. As you can tell, I have sympathy for them and the romanticism of their plans. I wonder if you share these feelings or if you completely disagree and your sympathies are firmly with the people defrauded by Peter over the course of his criminal career. If you look at the sailing forums, there's not much sympathy there for him. When Peter died, he was just shy of 50 years old, so there must have been a lot of people affected by him, and not too many shed tears at news of his death, I suspect. But whatever we think of the couple, one thing we must agree on is the terrible nature of the deaths they suffered. That discomfort and understanding that your body is slowly giving up and shutting down must be terrible to live through, especially drifting on the ocean in that heat, always hoping to see land but never finding it. And although you may not have the same sympathy for the couple as me, I find it just so terribly sad. I appreciate that you too may find it inappropriate as the circumstances are so different, but Sharon's last words remind me of the last diary entry of a genuine hero, Robert Falcon Scott, as he knew he was dying in the Antarctic. It made me recall his final diary entry, written on Thursday, March 29th, 1912, which said the following. We had fuel to make two cups of tea apiece, and bare food for two days on the 20th. Every day we've been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent it remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. For God's sake, after our people. Very different circumstances, I know. One a hero, the other a couple on the run. But they both recorded their poignant last moments, knowing full well the fate that awaited them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join us at our Facebook group. You'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. There you will find bonus episodes, exclusive content, and potentially the answer to a never-ending story. Maybe. So on that note... I'm off to sit on the couch and dream of adventures and ponder whether I have the ability and courage to make them happen. So until we speak again next week, take it easy 
And of course, stay away from the absinthe and stay classy. <laughs>